0: Welcome
1: to Indy Matters,
0: the show from the Nevada Independent.
1: I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter
0: and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas.
1: On this week's episode, former Democratic presidential hopeful Andrew Yang joins me and Riley Snyder to talk about his new political action committee that hopes to establish a new political party called the Forward Party. We go over its role in Nevada as they put their support behind a potential ballot initiative that would give the state open primaries and ranked choice voting.
0: After that, DC reporter Humberto Sanchez discusses Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer's decision to retire at age 83 and the process the President and the Senate need to go through to replace him.
1: At the end of the show, we have the director of the State Public Health Lab, Dr. Mark Pandori, back on the show to talk more about COVID and the Omicron variant. Nevada has seen a rapid shift over the past few years in which fewer people are registered as Democrats or Republicans, and more people are declaring themselves nonpartisan. In fact, people who are unaffiliated with either major party or are registered with a minor party recently eclipsed the size of either of the two big parties. But if you're not a Democrat or Republican, you're not allowed to cast a ballot in most races in the primary election. That might change thanks to a proposed Nevada ballot initiative that would implement open primaries, which means that anyone can participate in a primary election, not just a member of the specific political party. It would also enact ranked choice voting, the process by which you rank candidates on a ballot instead of just voting for one. To talk more about this, assistant editor Riley Snyder and I sat down with 2020 Democratic presidential hopeful and forward party founder Andrew Yang, who is a big supporter of ranked choice voting and open primaries and a major critic of the two-party dominance. I'm here with assistant editor Riley Snyder, and we are joined by uh, a lesser known guest, some may say, uh, Andrew Yang, uh, a 2020 presidential hopeful, 2021 New York mayoral hopeful, businessman, philanthropist. Am I missing anything there, Andrew?
2: (laughs) All around, swell guy. Hey guys, how are you? (laughs) Doing well. And so we're going to talk
1: about about ranked choice voting, open primaries, the forward party, which is something you started recently. So I'm going to throw the first question to Riley here.
3: Well, cool. thanks so much Andrew for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. I wanted to start with the forward Party. So you announced the creation of this organization movement party a couple of months ago back in the fall, kind of in conjunction with a book that you wrote. I guess for our listeners can you start by explaining, what sort of the goal of the forward party is and how it's sort of different from how we think and perceive of normal third parties in the the political sphere.
2: Sure, happy to. While I was writing my book uh, Forward, I came to the tough realization that our two-party system is ruining us. It's going to bring us to civil war, strife, widespread political violence. And so when you dig a little deeper, you realize that The two-party system is completely made up. It's a fabrication. It's the worst design failure in the history of the world, (laughs) it turns out. There's nothing in the Constitution about any political party. And I'll I'll just talk about a friend, Jonathan Haidt, who is very smart. He said the worst number of political parties you can have is one. The second worst is two. (laughs) So the question is, how do you get it to be more than two? And the answer to that lies in the hands of Nevadans over this next number of weeks and months, which is you have to shift away from the closed party primary system and have something like an open nonpartisan primary supplemented or complemented with, let's say, an instant runoff or ranked choice voting system. And that would lead us to better incentives for our existing representatives and over time to a more vibrant genuinely representative and democratic lowercase d system where you would have more than two parties. So I came to all of these realizations and said, okay, let's get a move on because it turns out that things are getting worse, not better. Polarization is getting worse, not better. And so I started the forward party to help transition us to a nonpartisan,
3: more multipolar, multi-party system. So right now, the Forward Party, I believe, is registered as a, as a political action committee. And I think you've been open in saying that this is not like a traditional party structure. Do you have plans to, to register this as a, as a political party? And wh- why do you think this is going to be successful when like the last century of American political history is sort of littered with these efforts to start a third party that don't ultimately end up going anywhere?
2: We are indeed a political action committee because the FEC won't certify you as a political party until you have multiple state chapters, a convention, which we might have in Vegas, by the way, supporting different candidates. So we're going to satisfy those requirements and be certified as a political party sometime over the next number of months. In the meantime, we are a pack. And the reason why this is so imperative, and I believe will be successful, is that more and more Americans are waking up to the fact that the duopoly is broken. And I just saw some numbers from Nevada that people who aren't Democrats and or a Republican are going up in number than people who are traditional partisans is going down. That's particularly pronounced among young people. I saw a recent poll that said 70 percent of young people don't like either party. of Americans want to move on from the duopoly, 44 to 50% of Americans identify themselves as independents. So if if you look around, you see that we're in a time of institutional displacement, failure, replacement, and that should be true of our political parties too. It's just they're hanging on. They're saying, no, 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 don't consign us to to obsolescence, like we're going to just stay here even as Things aren't working. So we're going to succeed where others have failed because it's well past time. It's years and years overdue.
1: One thing that you you mentioned when you were talking about the forward party was ranked choice voting, which is one of the things that we wanted to touch on today. And I'm just curious, you've you've been a pretty outspoken proponent of ranked choice voting and open primaries. Why are things like ranked choice voting and open primaries superior to the current election system that we have in Nevada and, you know, across the US?
2: A lot of people in Nevada don't pay that much attention to politics in their particular district. And a lot of the reason for that is that if they did dig in, they'd find they don't have a meaningful choice anyway, (laughs) where 83% of congressional districts, as one example, are safe seats in either very blue or very red. So if you were to show up and say, hey, I I want to participate, I want to make a difference, it's already done. It's already spoken for. The fix is in. And so a lot of people sense that that's true and that change is going to be hard to come by. And so we just move on with our lives and hope for the best. Now, a nonpartisan open primary would completely shake that up where you can vote for someone of any party. It's not just these party insiders who say, hey, guess what? Like, these are the choices. But there's no real choice. Instead, you'd have real choices. New parties would actually have a chance to compete. If you liked someone, you could vote for them and no one would be able to tell you you're just going to waste your vote or it's a spoiler because if you have ranked choice voting, you can vote for whoever you want first and then whoever you want second, whoever you want third, and no one can try and beat you over the head or, or bully you about your vote. So it would be a dramatic improvement over our current process where most Nevadans realize you don't have a meaningful choice
3: most of the time, which is one reason
2: why you're so disgusted by politics.
3: I wanted to ask, Andrew, can you give us an idea of what work that the Forward Party is doing in Nevada, and if the organization and the PAC is at all supportive or behind this Final Five ballot initiative, the one that was filed a few months ago by the Institute for Political Innovation that would move the state to open primaries and then ranked choice general election voting. Are are you supporting that group? Are you big cheerleaders, fans of it? What's your relationship with that ballot initiative?
2: We are huge supporters of that ballot initiative and the people behind it, and we want to help. So if you want to help give Nevadans real, genuine choice, go to forwardparty.com, just say, hey, like join the email list, and then we'll reach out to you and say, let's get the signatures. Let's change this process. I'll be in Nevada at some point before the ballot initiative. A lot of Forward Party volunteers will be there. Some people listening to this hopefully will be among that group make it happen. Let's make these changes that we know are long overdue. So as you can tell I'm super enthusiastic about this ballot initiative.
3: Yeah. Can you tell us any more about what sort of resources that the forward party and yourself might be putting towards this ballot initiative? It's very difficult in Nevada and other states to get things on the ballot, as I'm sure you're aware. You mentioned that you're going to probably come out to the state. There's volunteers here already. Are there any financial resources or help that you'll be putting forward to try to get this thing on the ballot?
2: Oh, yeah, I'm sure we'll be doing everything under the sun will spend money and resources and time. I'm going to suggest that if the goal is to get the signatures initially, that that's something that you need volunteers for. You can pay people for it, but I think people understand that it's better if it's actually just volunteers going out and getting it done. Uh, and then after it's actually on the ballot, then there'll be money to be spent promoting it. Saying, hey, don't let the Democrats or Republicans try to confuse you. <laughs> like, this stuff will give you better options, real choices, and that there may be some advertising or other campaigns that might be helpful for that.
1: In Nevada, we were a caucus state. We, we've changed that recently, but caucusing and ranked choice voting are, are actually pretty similar. Is there an advantage you see to ranked choice versus caucusing? Or, do, I mean, people did not like the caucus here.
2: <laughs> so, Joey, please let me very, very powerfully distinguish between caucusing and ranked choice voting. (laughs) So, um, So caucusing, you generally have to get together in a group, in person, talk it out. It takes a while. There are multiple rounds. Ranked choice voting is not that. Ranked choice voting is you show up, there's a ballot, you say Riley one, Andrew two, Joey three, and you walk out and you don't talk to a soul. (laughs) You you know what I mean? It, It just enables people to vote for multiple candidates, gets rid of the spoiler effect, discourages negative campaigning, allows more people to have real choice. And you don't need to go to like a group of 15 of your neighbors and argue with them. There's none of that stuff.
3: While we're on the topic of caucuses versus primaries, Nevada lawmakers earlier, or I guess last year, I forget it's 2022 all the time, passed a bill that would move the state from a caucus to a primary. We were just curious if we could get your opinion on that. You had dropped out, I think, before the Nevada caucuses came up, but had Nevada been the first state in the nominating process for the presidential primaries, do you think you would have done well here? Do you think Nevada would serve that purpose of selecting presidential candidates better than Iowa and New Hampshire would?
2: Wow, so freighted. You know, I've got a lot of friends in Iowa. I I will say that um, Nevada makes a lot of sense as the first caucus state because it's more representative of the country at large. I, I think there is something powerful about having a caucus initially or having at least a caucus somewhere in the mix. But if you're trying to get people's preferences I'm not sure it's necessary that you retain the caucus specifically. I think something like ranked choice voting captures people's preferences and and makes it less daunting because a lot of people find caucusing daunting.
1: Are, Are you planning on endorsing any candidates there in Nevada? Are any on your radar? Is the forward party as a whole thinking of getting behind anybody?
2: We're going to be supportive of people that like this ballot initiative for sure. But so no one in particular at the moment. I don't. I don't have any insight to share right now. Um, I'm going to piggyback on Joey's question.
3: Like, are are there any elected officials or candidates in Nevada right now that you know of that you have seen what they have to say, know their views, and you think, all right, this person is aligned with the thinking that we have at the Forward Party and that you have? Is there anyone like that in Nevada that you, you're aware of right now? We are having some early conversations. We have great
2: volunteers in Nevada, and and some of them have candidates that they're excited about. But it'd be premature for us to to talk about candidates right now.
3: I wanted to ask, there's been some talk, and again, I've went through the Forward Party website and some of the things that you've written and said since announcing the creation of uh, the Forward Party about potentially running a presidential candidate in 2024. I'm going to venture a guess that you're not going to announce your bid on our podcast. But I just wanted to know, because I think people are curious, like, Are you foreclosing any sort of bid on uh, running for president or any other office between now or then? Do you want someone else to try and take up that mantle? Or are you still trying to wait and see what happens in the midterms and what happens over the next few years?
2: If you fast forward to what's likely to transpire over this next few years, you have to know that our country is on the edge of spiraling into political violence, Civil War 2.0. I'm going to do everything I can to try to keep us from heading over that cliff. And whatever that means in 2022 or 2024, I, I'm going to do it. I will say that right now, my focus is on
3: 22 and helping other candidates. But no Sherman-esque statement about not running. It's still still an option out there.
2: Yeah, I, I'm going to do whatever I think uh, is most beneficial to the country. I will share that I'm not someone who has some burning desire to be in a particular office the rest of rest of it. Like so, if it'll. Be helpful, I'll do it. If it's not going to be helpful, I'll, I'll be helping someone else. Has the COVID
1: pandemic changed your thinking about any of the issues that you ran on in 2020 or 2021? Things
2: like universal basic income or anything like that? The biggest change since my campaign has been the real life rollout and implementation of cash relief over the last number of months for tens of millions of Americans, the enhanced child tax credit that lifted 3.8 million kids out of poverty and, and should be continuing in perpetuity, according to 442 economists. So a lot of this stuff, when, when you all, if someone's listening to this, you remember hearing about Andrew Yang and universal basic income and you were like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, it'll never happen. It's too good to be true. And then fast forward a couple of years, you're like, oh, wait, it did happen or some version of it. And I kind of like that check. And like, it just shows that. It can be done. We do have the resources. People will solve their own problems with that money better than, frankly, a government program that pretends to solve the problem and you have never even heard about the program. And then there's some politician talking about the program later and you're like, I don't even know what they're talking about. So the promise of universal basic income is clearer to more and more Americans. When I was running for president, the approval rating nationally of universal basic income was something like 28%. A lot of people were like, oh, that's too good to be true or far out or will never happen. Now, the last poll I saw was something like 56%, about twice what it was. I joke that if it was that high when I was running, I might be president today. So a lot of what I ran on has come to pass in ways good and bad. The bad is that half of companies have said that they're investing more in automation because people don't necessarily want to see someone else when they go to the market or or wherever. Mentioning current
1: president, we'll talk about Joe Biden here for just a second. His approval ratings, as a lot of people have seen, are not amazing right now. Are you expecting to see a, a Democratic primary in 2024? And if that was the case with an open primary, would it be better to have both Republicans and Democrats putting forth multiple candidates? Or do you think it would be better to just have one party in an open primary? Do you think it matters?
2: I think that you're going to see a competitive primary on the Democratic side, more so than on the Republican side. I don't think Joe's running again, which means it's going to be relatively open. I know it's like that that, that might be newsworthy, but I I recently have come to the conclusion that I don't think he's running again. On the Republican side, Trump, I believe, is going to steamroll the field. So that's going to be less competitive. The Democratic race is going to be competitive because there's no clear front runner. Uh, I think you're going to see some new candidates emerge that weren't in the field in 2020. In an ideal world, we'd have nonpartisan open primaries in the presidential too, uh, which is not what's being considered in Nevada on this ballot initiative. One of the most interesting things I discovered running for president is that it turns out the presidential race is the biggest opening in the system, where it's easier for an independent candidate to run nationally than it would be on a local level, because on a local level, there's not much local press not much oxygen. and No one's really paying attention. You just have these partisans who are just going to pull the lever the way that they always do. Whereas in the presidential, if someone had the resources to make their case nationwide, they actually can do it. So I, I do think there's going to be a third party candidate who runs as an independent or a libertarian or some other party
3: that's going to have an impact on the race for sure. I have a follow-up question based on something that you and Joey were just talking about. If President Biden decides not to run again, and uh, assuming that former President Trump decides to th- run, run again in 2024. If I can ask you to play a uh, pundit just for a, a minute, if, if Vice President Kamala Harris runs and gets the Democratic nomination, do you think she would have any chance of winning against Trump or have pretty good chances of winning against Trump? How do you see that race going out if she's the, the nominee?
2: Kamala will certainly be one of the main contenders for the Democratic nomination. The last numbers I saw show that she polled five points worse than Joe, against a republican opponent. So I don't think she's going to clear the field. I think she'll be one of a number of contenders.
1: And I wanted to jump back to something that you said at the very beginning of this interview which was talking about the Forward Party convention. You put out a Twitter poll. So Vegas is definitely in the in the contending the Forward Party Vegas party is, is one party.
2: of the front runners for the Forward Party convention. One of many reasons why I'm excited about Nevada in the days to come. I think Riley's got the last question here.
3: <laughs> I wanted to wrap up with a, a basketball question because I'm a big basketball fan. I think I think you got some heat for being like a, a wavering Knicks or Nets fan. But as a, as a basketball fan, I just wanted to get your take on the whole Kyrie Irving situation with him coming back after all his stuff about the vaccine. I'm going to cut in here real
1: quick to explain what they're talking about. I had to look this up since I also don't follow what the kids call hoops. Kyrie Irving is a star basketball player for the Brooklyn Nets who has refused to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. Because of New York City's vaccine mandate, the team initially announced that Irving would not be eligible to play or participate with the team, but they later reversed themselves amid a slew of injuries and positive COVID cases, allowing Irving to play in games outside of New York.
3: You know, necessarily, I want you to weigh in on on all the vaccine mandate stuff, but if you were in charge of the Nets, how would you have handled the the whole Kyrie Irving situation? Would you allow him to come back? Would you ask him to to continue to to not play? Uh, So I was a Knicks fan throughout my childhood,
2: and broke up with the team when they dumped Jeremy Lin as an Asian guy who follows hoops just too much and you know the management and everything else. So I later became a Nets fan when Jeremy Lin joined the Nets actually. <laughs> in terms of how, how the Nets have managed the Kyrie Irving situation, I think that they did as well as you could have expected given the circumstances. It does make sense to me that when you have new players coming in right and left because of COVID, then having Kyrie join isn't disruptive to the continuity of, of the team. It, it does make for a fascinating dynamic where they're better on the road than at home which is highly unusual (laughs) Um, you know so it's funny rooting for the Nets now it's like you don't care about home court because it's like yeah if they don't have home court it'll be good it'll be good for for their their playoff chances. I didn't realize we had turned into a sports podcast. This will all go into the uh, the extended edition.
3: <laughs> Keep it all in, Joey. Don't cut a second. No,
1: I know. I, know. I, w- I wish I knew anything about basketball. I'm more of a baseball guy myself. But <laughs> uh, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, and uh, have a good
2: rest of your afternoon. You too. Thanks, Nevada, Andy. All right.
1: Well, I am here with our man in DC, Humberto Sanchez. Humberto, we always start with the weather, and it sounds like you have something fun to tell me about the weather this time. Oh, yes, there's a bomb cyclone coming.
4: What, and, what does uh, that mean? Apparently, the bomb refers refers to the, uh, the the pressure. There's a like a a pressure drop of some sort that is keeping snow on the on the eastern seaboard. So there's gonna be snow like all the way from Virginia through like Nova Scotia. Wow. And uh, apparently, Boston is gonna get like three feet. New York. We're going to get maybe four inches, thankfully only that, but it's uh, everybody's uh, on edge. It sounds like it sounds sounds fun.
1: So anyway, the main topic we're getting to today is Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, who is stepping down. This is a big deal. We've seen a lot of this in in the past couple of years, actually. And and there's always kind of some talk about why they're doing it. And so I guess the first question is, why is he stepping down? Is it just retirement or are the Democrats like you got to get out now before we lose control (laughs) and can't get someone through?
4: It's a combination of both. He, he's 83 years old, but the Democratic activists have been pressuring him to retire, and he's been pretty good at deflecting that. He doesn't pay much attention to the, the hue and the cry that go out on out there. But he is cognizant of the fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, obviously, unexpectedly. And Donald Trump was allowed to make the pick, and that changed the ideological makeup of the court. So with that in mind, he decided to step down and give Biden this pick. And just a side note, they, they served together on the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee many years ago. And he also was chairman during his confirmation process when he first got picked to the court by Bill Clinton. And ironically, now he's president when he's retiring. So things have come full circle for the two of them. So how important is it for Breyer to be confirmed by the end of the calendar year here? first of all, there's a midterm election in November. And if the Senate flips, if the Democrats lose control, they will be pressure to wait. If we look back to when Mitch McConnell held up Merrick Garland's confirmation, which Barack Obama picked to replace former conservative Justice Antonin Scalia, he held off on that. He kept he blocked the, the president from filling that seat. And so if the Senate flips, there'll be pressure for Democrats to hold off. But beyond that, the window could close at any moment. It's, it's very tenuous because- just a few weeks ago, the Senate was had this voting rights package up and they were going to hold a vote on it. And all of a sudden, one of the senators, Senator Brian Schatz, he got COVID and he could not attend this vote because he was quarantining. So they had to delay consideration of that vote by a week. And they did that. But you can see how tenuous it is, right? So you have the Democrats and Republicans right now are split 50-50 in the Senate. And also you have Dianne Feinstein, who's the oldest senator right now. She's 88 years old. Any kind of medical emergency can can really throw anything off. So it's it's vital that they act really as fast as they can. If the Democrats got a nominee through, how would that change the balance of the court? It wouldn't,
1: right? They it would, it would stay at, at a...
4: That's right. It, it, it would essentially stay the, the same... Some folks have said that, it, depending on who they pick, it, it could push the liberal wing a little further to the left. So you'll see more split decisions. But you've already you're already seeing a lot. But essentially, there there would be no no great change in the ideological makeup of the court. What potential roadblocks could the Republicans throw at this to you know delay it? They they could slow down the process in the committee somewhat. I think maybe for a week or so. But but really, the die is cast on this. The GOP changed the rules to allow confirmation for uh, Supreme Court nominees by a simple majority of the Senate for Neil Gorsuch in 2017, who got Scalia's spot. And also, they also set the precedent for a quick confirmation with Amy, Amy Coney Barrett in 2020 to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They, they uh, confirmed her in 30 days from her announcement of her nomination to being confirmed. So it, there's really no stopping it. So you'll see the, the, them try to put up a good fight in the committee and try to show that these the judges are too liberal or, or, or they'll take some issue with it. They will try to exact some kind of pound of flesh. They'll, they'll see political advantage in, in trying in trying to hold this up or trying to make a big play of holding it up. But really, they, there's not much they can do.
1: So how will nominee. Breyer stepping down and a nominee being put forward?
4: How is that going to affect uh, Catherine Cortez Masto's re-election bid? Well, her, her likely opponent, Adam Laxalt, is, is already framing the issue as uh, her being a rubber stamp for, for President Biden. To be fair, both senators have voted for most of Biden's nominees except for a very few. Mm -hmm. And so we'll see if that resonates with voters. Looking back to 2016, nominating conservative Supreme Court justices was a motivating factor for uh, the GOP. So we'll see what happens. But uh, that's what they they seem to be doing right now.
1: And also, like I said at the beginning of this, we've seen a lot of Supreme Court nominations and Supreme Court changes in the past couple of years. Is this normal?
4: That's right. Well, I think the court had come to a point where, where most of the folks on there were were pretty elderly. And so that happens periodically, right? Because people are are lifetime appointments and people usually stay there until they can't either work anymore or they do die. And so now we've reached one of these points in time where the older ones are departing for one reason or another. And in those replacements, that changes how the court is operating in terms of how they vote, what part of the ideological spectrum they fall on. And so right now, because Donald Trump got to pick three appointees that changed up how the court votes and where it falls on the ideological spectrum, in this case... We're not going to see that change, right? This is essentially going to be a liberal judge for a liberal judge. So it probably won't be as knockdown drag out as it was with, say, Brett Kavanaugh, where that that was a very divisive nomination process. And so who is on the shortlist for the nominees? President Biden has said he's going to make good on his campaign promise to pick an African-American woman. And there's no dearth of talent to choose from. He's already looking at one in particular is Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. She was selected to replace Merrick Garland on the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the DC circuit, which is a basically seen as a feeder court for the Supreme Court. And, and she was confirmed by the Senate and she won three, she got three Republican votes. So she's, she's got a leg up on that. There's Leandra Kruger from California. She's, she serves on the California Supreme Court. Those seem to be the top two uh, candidates right now, but you never know. We'll see how, who he picks because I'm sure he's weighing a lot of factors. And, and the last thing before
1: we wrap up is when can we expect to see a confirmation hearing?
4: Well I, one of those factors I think are how far along are they with with this vetting. As you recall he he did make that campaign promise during the campaign to pick an African American woman. And so since he's been doing that they have been vetting people. So there is a list and if they've already vetted a person that would augur for a sooner rather than later confirmation hearing and the president said he's going to make a pick by the end of next month. If it comes sooner you could see something in the judiciary committee as late as February late February early March, I would say is what I would
1: guess. All right. Well, Umberto, thank you for joining me and good luck with the bomb cyclone that's going to be hitting DC soon.
4: All right. I'll talk to you if I make it.
1: Reporter Tabitha Mueller and I talked to Dr. Mark Pandori, the director of the state public health lab a few weeks ago about the COVID testing shortages, the Omicron variant, masks, and a slew of other things. Now we've got a little bit more of that interview we start by asking him what the future looks like as COVID becomes a part of the yearly cycle of viruses.
5: Well, it means that the threats that you invisibly face, generally in the wintertime, believe it or not, are, that list of threats is now larger. And there's a new reason for you to be concerned and to get a shot every year. We all know, like for influenza, we do this We've been doing this every year. It's just that it hasn't been like popularized. Like every year, what do you see outside of Walgreens or CVS? A Mm -hmm. sign that says, come in and get your flu shot. Heck, mm. you can get it in Safeway. safe way and come get your flu shot. And who does? Well, my 87 year old father goes in October and gets it. He's so good at it. <laughs> and his buddies all go. And then they argue about who hasn't gone. And that was going on three or four years ago. And so now it means for the average citizen that the conversation is, well, not just 70, you know, geriatric patients necessarily, but just about everybody's going to have to go every year and get a shot, the average citizen. If you choose not to, then you are going to live in a risk group and that's your choice. Mm
1: -hmm. Is that alpha COVID virus still out there? Are people still getting delta and alpha and beta and gamma or are those, is it all Omicron now?
5: The last time we saw alpha was August 12th.
1: Wow, really? Yeah,
5: in Nevada. When
1: when you get a test and you get a positive test, you know what it is like every time.
5: So we can sequence a fixed amount every day. So when we exceed that amount, we have to randomize what we sequence around the state and the non-peak time, We sequence everything. And then when we're in the non-peak times, we even try to hit reverse and fill in the missing data that we had. Because one day we want to look at this gigantically. But yeah, we have to do a sampling of them now. Yeah.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters.
1: We'd like to thank Andrew Yang, Riley Snyder, Humberto Sanchez, and Mark Pandori for being on the show this week.
0: This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Michelle Rindells, Riley Snyder, and Jackie Valley.
1: If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, ideas on how to scramble an ostrich egg, or whatever else is on your mind at joey at theenvyindy.com or jacob at theenvyindy.com.
0: Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey.
1: Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato.
0: And I'm reporter and
1: producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.